Well, have you ever tried to convince yourself of something that was probably not very likely to happen? Uh, every Wednesday, Barrett and I go to lunch at the Junkyard Dog Steakhouse, and and so uh, sometimes I'll say, "Barrett, you up for dessert?" And then he'll say, "Yeah, I could I could go for a little something." And so you know, order that piece of cheesecake, and we're going to split it. And I noticed this past Wednesday, I I didn't split it as evenly as I had been. I I took a little bigger portion for myself. You know, you tell yourself, "I just need that little." T- taste of something, you know? Or maybe, maybe uh, for you, your weakness is cookies or something like that. You think, well, I'm going to eat just one, and then you realize, well, I ate four of those things. Uh, maybe it's that you know, convincing yourself, you know, I'm just going to go to Walmart, and I'm going to run in, and I'm going to get three or four things. And then before you know it, you've got a cart that's so full, you feel guilty about going through the speedy checkout aisle because it says 20 items or less. And so you realize that there are these things that you're like, why do I even tell myself that this is how it's going to turn out because I should know better by now. You know, it's like me telling myself that I'm not going to hit the snooze on the alarm clock when it goes off in the morning because I'm going to hit it, if I just hit it once, it's a victory. Uh, Sometimes it's two, sometimes it's three times. And so we see in the book of Jonah someone who is convincing, trying to convince himself of something that he should know better. After all, he is one of God's prophets. And so he knows what it's like to speak the message that God has given him to speak. And so here he finds himself in a situation where he has been told to do something very specific. And if you know the story of Jonah, many of us do, then Jonah does quite the opposite thing, doesn't he? From Jonah chapter 1 verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord, and he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, this is one of those moments where we think, Jonah... What were you thinking? You know, running from God like that? How did you think that was going to turn out? Now, a little backstory. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. And the Assyrians were a mighty people at one time in the world. We talk about how, you know, the world, and if you've ever studied world history, you know that there are different times that different people are kind of the biggest, baddest people in the region or on the planet at that time. Uh, We know that the Romans had their time. We know that the Greeks had their time. Uh, We know that the British, uh, the British Empire, you know, they just 
had the coronation of King Charles yesterday, for example. I saw that in the news. And so at one time, the British Empire was pretty expansive. And so you go back into the more ancient of days... And then you had this group of people known as the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians were especially bloodthirsty and ruthless. And, of course, Jonah knew that. Jonah had probably seen firsthand some of what the Assyrians had managed to do over time. The way they had treated people in such a ruthless manner. And so Jonah doesn't want to go preach to the Assyrians. And so Jonah does what Jonah thinks is the best move. And he finds a ship headed to a faraway place. And so he pays the fare, the the port city of Joppa there on the Mediterranean. And he starts sailing through the Mediterranean. And so then we move down to verses 9 and 10 in in, uh, the book of Jonah because what's happened now is that a storm has has arisen and uh, we read in... Verse 4, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such, a, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. And so now they're trying to figure out what's going on here, what do we need to do? And, uh, and so then they, they decided to cast lots and see you know, who's responsible for all this. This must be judgment falling on someone. They cast lots, it falls to Jonah. And so when they say, okay, tell us about yourself. Who are you? Who are you from? Who are your people? And in verse 9 it says, he answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. And so Jonah, at some point, has said to them, I'm running from something. I'm running from God. And so these people are like, oh my goodness, you know, what in the world have we gotten ourselves into? Who is this guy that's come aboard that he could anger his God in such a way that he would send such a violent storm. They've already tossed cargo overboard to lighten the ship, and uh, they are trying to figure out how to survive. The situation has certainly become dire. And so uh, Jonah tells them, you know, hey, if you will just pick me up and throw me into the sea, it's going to be okay. And here they are, a bunch of pagans, but they really don't want to do that. These pagans have enough value for human life because they are, they are worshipers, but they're worshipers of other gods. And they value human life that they want to try to avoid throwing Jonah overboard as much as they can. Which is quite ironic as we see the story begin to unfold. And so then we get to this point where uh, then they cried out to the Lord. 
So verse 14, they're the ones, the people on the ship, uh, they cried to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you please. Then they take Jonah and they throw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So they've become believers in all this. They have said, wow, you know, your God is different from the gods we worship. And so it's one of those unlikely situations where people have come, people who did not know Yahweh, the one true God, the God of the Hebrews, that people that did not know him have sort of become, they've kind of had this encounter with him, something they did not expect. And so now here they are looking and they're saying, well, this, this God, the one that he says created the sea and all the dry land, this God is something. He's showing us something that other gods that we've bowed down to have never showed us before. Now let's stop and think about that. Because you've heard me talk at different times about idolatry. And that idolatry for us is different than it was in the ancient world. Now there are still people who practice idolatry. Don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard people talk about going in convenience stores. One of the local ministers in town noticed uh, something outside of one of the convenience stores. And he looked it up, and it's something that is supposed to, in the Hindu religion, it is something that wards away evil spirits. And they hang it up outside, and then so he noticed the number of convenience stores town and markets and then the, uh, one of the hotels in town that they uh, have this thing and it's originally created, I can't remember the name of it, I, I did a little research and it's created to ward off evil spirits and it's created by taking seven chilies and a lemon and constructing those together and then they string those together and they hang them like over uh, a doorway or outside of their business. Now, we could look at that and say, wow, you know, that's some pretty heavy superstition right there. And if you were to go into their homes or go into their, you know, their business office or something like that, you might see little figurines because in the Hindu religion, they have not dozens of gods, they have hundreds that, uh, that they acknowledge and worship in the Hindu religion. And so, um, and so idolatry for us doesn't look like that. Idolatry for us is a lot more subtle. Idolatry for us is those things that we put between ourselves and God that we are trying to find meaning in. And so we've talked about this before, and the list is lengthy, and, and, and idolatry can vary for different kinds of people. Uh, just a matter of, of a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that idolatry can look like, well, for some people it's shopping. 
They go shopping because the idea of getting new stuff makes them feel good. What's the problem with that? It only makes you feel good for a short amount of time. And then what do you do? You do more shopping. And so you end up spending a lot of money that brings you brief satisfaction, brief satisfaction, brief satisfaction. But long term, it has no great effect except that you spend a lot of money that you didn't need to spend necessarily. You know, for some people, they find it in relationships. They find it in sex. Some people find it in, uh, in drugs and alcohol. Some people find it, I mean, the, 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 the ways that you can find satisfaction. Some people gossip as a means of feeling better about themselves, uh, feeling like they're in the know. They enjoy uh, talking about other people. And that kind of is something that they feed off of and it sort of energizes them, charges their batteries in a way. But then what, what good becomes of that? Well, nothing. As a matter of fact, it can have the opposite effect and it can be destructive, right? And so there are lots of ways that we find ourselves, you know. Uh, for me, I have to watch how much sports that I watch. I have to watch, you know, how much sports am I consuming? Uh, and when I, boy, when I go down this road, this is when I have guys come up to me after and say, Preacher, I, you know, I really wish you hadn't gone there. You know, for some people, it's social media. They're spending a lot of time on Instagram and Facebook. And so there are lots of ways that we have to look at how we spend our money or how we spend our time. And is it really productive? Or is it something that in the end doesn't really do anything and all we did was burn money or time and it drives a wedge between us and God? And so here you have a bunch of pagans who have come face to face with the one true God of the universe. And so now... They're looking and they're saying, oh my goodness, Lord God, forgive us. Don't hold us accountable, they say, for taking this man's life. Now, why do we find irony in that? Because the very reason that Jonah gets on that ship in the first place and is disobedient to God is because he thinks so little of the Assyrians that he doesn't want them to be saved. He elevates himself to God's judgment seat. Another thing that's very dangerous you know, the idea of saying, I'm not going to tell those people about Jesus. I'm not going to invite them to my church because they're just not worth it. Oh my goodness. They, they, I know what they've done. I know where they've been. And they don't deserve salvation. And that's exactly what Jonah is wrestling with. That's why he gets on a ship. And if you look at a map, he's supposed to go northeast. And instead, he goes due west. And he is headed to a, at least in ancient times, in their world, 
he is heading to the edge of the earth. He might as well be. And so, uh, and so we get this situation now at the end of, of chapter 1 uh, where God has intervened. Uh, verse 17, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Now before I begin in verse 2 and read that, I want to say there are some people that some of them are really smart people. And they say, now was there really a fish? Some translations say a whale. Was there really this big sea creature that swallowed a grown man whole? And oh by the way, if you've studied biology, right? Uh, if you've studied anatomy or anything like that, you know there's acids in stomachs, right? That's how food breaks down and that's how it gets digested. A human being, some would say, there's no way they can survive in a fish or a whale for three days. There is just no way. The acid in, the, in that stomach would have started eating his skin away. There's no way he survives this. And here's my response to that. Nothing about what I'm about to say is scientific, okay? If I believe that God Almighty can speak a universe into existence, then church family... I believe he can send a big old fish to swallow a grown man and keep him alive for three days. I truly, truly believe that. That God has power that we don't understand. You know, when Jesus has been resurrected from the dead and he goes to the upper room where the apostles are huddled together, they're, they're in fear. And they're all huddled together. And it says that Jesus, it even mentions that the doors are locked. And then it shows that Jesus enters the room. And then some people say, well, he must have been, post-resurrection, he must have been in like a spirit form. And that explains why he entered the room. No. If he's in spirit form, how does he hold out his hands to Thomas and say, you know, put your hand in my hand or put your hand in my side? We know that at one point he's hungry and he eats. So if he's in spirit form, he's not eating, right? No, because that's God. God is powerful enough. Jesus is the incarnation of God. He's God in the flesh. And so if Jesus wants to enter a locked room and just show up, he can do that because he's Jesus. And so it amazes me how people try to rationalize some of the stuff we read in the Bible. No, it's the power of God. And so we begin now with Jonah's prayer in verse 2. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. How many times in your distress have you called to the Lord, church, and he answered you? From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths 
into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Let me read that again, church. I love that part of his prayer. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. What a beautiful prayer that is. A prayer that we can still learn from today, can't we? When he says that I... I look toward Jerusalem. That was an ancient custom that like, well, I know that's the holy city. I know that's where God's temple is. I know that God dwells in his temple. And so the idea is I'm going to cast my prayers in the direction of the holy city. And so when he refers to that in his prayer, he's saying, God, I repent. I'm turning back to you. You intervened. You got my attention. Now I'm turning back to you. And what a beautiful prayer this is. And there are times that I know that if some of our prayers, some of our most heartfelt prayers were written down, others might look at them and say, what a beautiful and sincere prayer that is. And then we could look back on that prayer and say, wow, if only I'd stuck with that. Right? Because we know in Jonah's story, this prayer comes here in chapter 2. And then we still got chapter 3 and 4 to go, don't we? If only he had stuck with it. Chapter 3 is all about Jonah going to Nineveh. And so he shows up and he preaches... And he warns them, and he says, y'all got to get right, or it's not going to go well for you. And then the Assyrian king says, okay, everybody, let's fast, and let's repent. And they go to sackcloth and ashes, and they have a time of fasting, and they repent, And then God says, okay, I'm not going to bring calamity on that city. And so, how does Jonah respond to all these people? All these people who are now right with God. Well, he basically throws a fit. I mean, you know how we're told by Jesus, 
in the Gospels. Jesus says, you should be childlike. And we talk about the difference, and I know you've heard other preachers and teachers at times talk about the difference between being childlike and having so sort of this awe and wonder. It's childlike when we're able to hear that God sends a fish to swallow a human being and then he survives for three days and gets tossed up. This is the nicest way we can put it, right? And he gets tossed up and then he has a change of heart. Okay? We can read that story with childlike wonder and say yes. Yeah, I believe that the God of the universe can overcome stomach acids and all that kind of stuff. And I I believe that can happen. And we're told, be childlike. We're never told to be childish, right? And so Jonah gives us a very good example here of what it's like to be childish. Because then Jonah begins to get really, really upset. Look at the first four verses here of Jonah chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Remember how he felt about the Assyrians' church family. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Think about it for a second. This is one of God's prophets. He is determined by God, this is going to be one of the people who speak for me. And he should, should have enough love and caring for people that he would say, praise you God for being slow to anger and abounding in love. Thank you for being compassionate and gracious. Another example yet again of us seeing the graciousness of God, not the wrath of God, but the graciousness of God even in the Old Testament. And so he's the person who should be saying, God, look what you did. Thank you for using me in this way. Look at all these people who calamity is not brought upon, but instead have turned to you. But that's not what he does, is it? He says, Dadgummit, God, I knew this would happen. That's why I got on that ship and went the other way. Because I know you. I know how you are. Gracious and loving, abounding in love, slow to anger. I knew you'd do it. You would save these people. And so once again, the man who prayed this beautiful prayer 
now has this heart that says, I wished I hadn't done it. And Lord, I wished you hadn't had me do it, and I wish these people weren't right with you. And then God asks a simple question. Yahweh says, is it right for you to be angry? Church family, if there's ever a passage of Scripture that shows us the danger of having a calloused heart, I think it's this. Because the pagans on the ship cared more about human life than Jonah who's supposed to be one of God's people. And so, what does it say about us as God's people if we ever find ourselves not caring about people? When one of our pagan neighbors seems to care more about someone than we do. church family, it's a warning for us today that we should have a heart that we truly, truly care about people. Jonah is gripped with fear. It's a strange kind of fear. He's living in denial and he is having this attitude that, you know, I am... Uh, I'm just going to be mad. And if you know the rest of the story, there is a, basically there's a weed that shows up, a vine. And it grows because God has sent, uh, God has sent a wind from the east, I believe it is. And so that, that tells us it's a hot wind. And it is scorching hot and Jonah's sitting overlooking the city just sulking having himself a big pity party and so God sends the hot wind and I can just picture a guy that's wind burnt and sunburned and he is just not a happy camper and then God sends him the shade that just poop kind of sprouts up out of nowhere and then covers his head and he's kind of blocked from the wind he's certainly blocked from the sun and he grows to love this thing and it's it's like a test Yahweh is saying, I'm going to see if you love this vine more than you love those people down there in Nineveh. And the problem is, church, if you know the story, he does. He does. He cared more for the vine. And then God kills it to make a point. And God says, you didn't plant it. You didn't tend to it. You didn't take care of it. Who are you to be disgruntled because it went away? And the story, I wish I could tell you, it has this wonderful happy ending. But it's kind of left for us to do with it what we will. Jonah is someone who is in denial about the real priorities. Uh, Sometimes we know the things we tell ourselves are simply not true. Lying to ourselves is a coping mechanism called denial. Denial is a way of emotionally protecting ourselves from accepting reality. 
And church family, a prayer that I often pray is, God, help me to see things as they really are. Because i got to tell you, left to my own devices, I connect dots that aren't there. I see things through a clouded lens. I don't see things as they really are. I want to close out today with 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. When it comes to fear, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And, you know, we can sit and we can fear lots of things. Jonah feared what would happen. He looked through a clouded lens of judgment and he feared what would happen if the people of Nineveh were were saved, if the people of Nineveh would repent and turn to God and, and get rid of their wicked ways. And they did. And instead of being happy about it, he was angry. And that's the kind of thing fear can do to us. If we have real life faith, church, then we're going to have the kind of faith that says that, you know, I'm going to have love in my heart. And what does First John tell us? That that perfect love drives out fear. The same way that light drives out darkness. And so when we think about this little light of ours and letting it shine, then that light overcomes the darkness that is around us. Darkness that brings about fear to people. And so let's be people who understand where our priorities should be. That we should love above all else. 1 Corinthians 16 tells us, 16.14 tells us, do everything in what church? In love. And so if we are doing everything in love, if we're loving people enough that we're not going to sit in judgment of them, but that we're going to be people who serve them in the name of Jesus and tell them about Jesus, and then we are going to be people who are letting our light shine before others. We're going to be people who are the embodiment of perfect love. Perfect love that drives out fear. May God help us to be those people. If you're with us this morning and you have not yet put on Christ in baptism, we give you that opportunity this morning. That you can come and you can say one simple thing, agree to a simple thing. When we ask, do you believe with all your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And you say, yes, I do. And that's all we need to hear from you. And then you can change your life forever, for all eternity. And we also extend the invitation for the express purpose that if you're with us today and you've got something weighing on you, that you just need to come down and tell us what that concern is. And we can take some time and pray with you and for you about that concern.
Let's stand and let's sing together.